Um, we're going to be reading from page 485 in your pew Bible, if you'd like to follow along. This is Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works." Good morning. My name is Greg Mitchell. I'm one of the members here and also a community group leader here at Trinity. It's good to have you. One of my favorite stories of all time is my favorite because of its unexpectedly unhappy ending. I love it. It's so unhappy in the end. F. Scott Fitzgerald's 1925 classic, The Great Gatsby, is one of my all-time favorite stories because of its unhappy ending. The protagonist, the main character, Gatsby, is this mysteriously wealthy, young, hip man living in Long Island, New York. And his foil, Nick Carraway, is sort of a modest Midwestern that moves next door to Gatsby. Nick Carraway is envious of the Gatsby life. He has this small, modest home next to this great big mansion. And Nick overhears over and over again the parties every night. 
the lifestyle that the great Gatsby is living. It seems like he has all the accolades, all the people, all the wealth, all the money, all the resources he could dream of. And life is a big party. And Nick wants Gatsby's life. Nick has a relative, a cousin, named Daisy. And a husband, her husband's name's Tom. Tom and Daisy Buchanan. They're local, so Nick connects with them. The plot line begins to unfold, and Gatsby finds out that Nick is related to Daisy. And it just so happens that Gatsby used to have a love interest of Daisy back in time. And so when Gatsby, the man that has everything, finds out the, the love interest is still around, he wants her to. And he'll go to any length to have her. Only problem is, as I just mentioned, Daisy's married to Tom. But again, that didn't stop the great Gatsby. Everything he pursued, he always had to have it. So what does he do? Well, he meets with Nick, his modest Midwestern neighbor, and arranges a little tea party for him to invite his cousin over and invite his neighbor Gatsby over. And that's just what happens. And it quickly becomes that their love rekindles, and then that spirals into an affair. Meanwhile, as Daisy begins cheating on her husband Tom, Tom is also cheating on Daisy with a woman named Myrtle Wilson. So there's two affairs, and this is sort of the, the messy backstory unfolding through the middle part of this, this whole narrative. And the climax of the whole story is all these main characters are driving home one night from a party. And as they're driving home, Gatsby's car drives through the not-so-lovely part of town. And it just so happens that his car strikes a woman and kills her. And it just so happens, ironically, that it's Myrtle, Tom's mistress, that is killed by Gatsby's car. The irony strengthens because it was actually Daisy driving the car rather than Gatsby. So in a sense, if you're following along, if you don't know the story too well, uh, Daisy ends up killing her husband's mistress. Unintentionally, but that's what happens. And this is sort of the pinnacle, the climax, the most gnarly part of the whole story. It is utterly messy. Gatsby responds by trying to cover, cover for her. Since it's his car, he takes the blame for Daisy. He says, it's, it's my fault. I was the one that did it. This only winds up to become Gatsby's fatal end. George, Myrtle's husband, seeks revenge by coming over to Gatsby's house one night, shows up at his mansion during a party, and fatally kills Gatsby, and then turns on himself. And that's the end of the story. That's how the unhappy story ends. I love this story because it doesn't have the typical, and they live happily ever after kind of ending. I find it really compelling and strangely encouraging in a world of happily ever after endings. Now this story, the story of Great Gatsby, actually ends with a small funeral with a few friends of a man who lied, cheated, and stole his way into riches. It only comes out at the end that Jay Gatsby wasn't even his real name. And he only ended all this riches and wealth and accolades wound him up fatally killed. So rather than glitz and glamour at the end of Jay Gatsby's life, it turns out to just be a horrible nightmare, an unhappy, unexpected ending 
He lost his home, he lost the girl, and he lost his life. The final images of the, the story is a, a boarded-up mansion already with graffiti spray-painted on it and a dead man in a tuxedo. Psalm 73 illustrates for us the Gatsby life, the life of the faithless, those who disregard God and seek to live without him, face a similar fate to verse 27 in our text. Verse 27, For behold, those who are far from you, i.e. the faithless, shall perish. You put an end, God, you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Church, this is the fate of the faithless, perishing. The faithless life is a life of death. It's just death dressed in a tuxedo. It looks better than it actually is. And Psalm 73 illustrates this reality to us. Like Nick Carraway envied Gatsby's life in the beginning, Asaph, the likely author who's in the superscription at the top of our text this morning, a psalm of Asaph. Asaph, the likely author, envies the life of those who are boastful around him, the arrogant, who he describes in verse 3 as the wicked because they are prospering. Wicked in the Old Testament is not sort of the green-faced, pointy-nosed, black hat with the tip on it, someone saying, I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog, too. No, that's not what wicked means here. Wicked is actually way more plain, way more ordinary. Someone dressed in just ordinary street clothes that is living a life apart from God, seeking to live their own will in their own way. When the Old Testament uses the word wicked, especially in the Psalms, this comes up so often, it's just the faithless. The wicked are those who are guilty before God for not following the ways of God. Wicked just means people that are faithless in plain street clothes. It's who Paul describes in Romans 1 as those that know God yet don't honor him as God or give thanks to him. But rather they become futile in their thinking and foolish in their hearts and they are darkened. This is the wicked, the faithless. And Asaph is experiencing severe dissonance in his life. He's perplexed that there's seemingly prosperity that the wicked are experiencing. It's almost as if Asaph knew Psalm one very well and he knew that God promises to bless those that are righteous those that walk with God and he promises to curse those who do not walk with him and Asaph is saying whoa 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 actually life doesn't feel this way it actually seems that those that are living faithlessly are being blessed and those that are struggling to follow Christ in the day-to-day are, they're the ones suffering and are cursed so the whole first 17 verses of our text is Asaph wrestling with this dissonance Because it seems like the faithless are actually prospering. It seems like they're getting on with life without God just fine. It seems like they're living a pain-free, problem-free, rich and relaxed life. Verse 4, pain-free, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Verse 5, problem-free. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Relaxed and rich, verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. 
And consequently, the faithless are prideful, violent schemers that speak violently and influentially against God, verses 6 through 9. Sadly, the wicked are so influential. The faithless are influential. Some of the people of God slip into following them. We see that in verse 10. I guess as the old adage goes, if you can't beat them, join them. I wonder if you've felt that pressure ever. I'm afraid that this is what many perplexed Christians resort to. If you can't beat them, I guess we'll just join them. Christian, beware of the allure of the Gatsby life, the life that seems easy, the life of the godless that seems like carefree and as if they're getting on without God just fine. It's tempting. I call this the Hakuna Matata life. Beware of this, the problem-free philosophy kind of life, the life that verse 12 describes as always at ease and increasing in wealth. Why should you be aware? Because, Christian, the, the Gatsby life is tantalizing. I mean, who doesn't want to live a problem-free, pain-free, relaxed and rich life? It's alluring. Like Nick Carraway, the Christian can easily be allured by this life. Moreover, Christian, beware that the Gatsby life can make you doubt the value of the Christian life. So while other, other Christians might turn from God and conform, some might just despair. Listen to Asaph's despair in verse 13. Have you ever felt this pain? Have you ever thought these thoughts? Verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. Have you ever felt this way? The Christian can begin to think that difficulties in their life signal vanity. It almost sometimes feels like if things are too difficult, then it, might not, it must be worthless, good for, good for nothing. Sometimes the Christian life can seem so difficult, it's tempting to make it seem like, ah, is this even worth it? Is my struggle real? Is, it, is there any payoff? Christian parents... Have you ever been frustrated by the prevailing voices competing to persuade your children that the world is godless and they have no need of him? Have you been frustrated by those prevailing, prevailing voices? Has, has it felt so difficult that your efforts feel just totally in vain? Christian employee, have you ever been frustrated by the coworker who though he's married and has three kids is, is willing to flirt his way through office politics with his female manager in order to get ahead. And you're wondering, I'm not willing to flirt my way. I'm not willing to lie, cheat, and steal, connive my way through office politics for the promotion. But it seems like the ones that do are the ones that are advancing, and I, I'm just stuck here with the entry-level job. Have you ever felt that way? Trinity pastors, have you ever felt frustrated by the strutting tongues of the wicked surrounding the sheep, making you feel like your tongue of God's word doesn't pack enough punch, that the, that the strutting tongues of the wicked are just too potent to eat, that your, your tongue of God's word is, is too weak 
to even persuade? Have you felt discouraged by that? Friends, we've been discouraged in many ways, I'm sure, in the Christian life. And it causes us to question the value of following Christ. This is so common, especially when you're surrounded by a faithless community and it seems like they're just getting by just fine. And this is why I think the Lord's given us this psalm. Because the allure of the faithless life produces two results. One, it persuades some to give up the Christian life. Verse 10, and conform. Maybe you felt this way. Up for others, it perplexes the Christian to despair the difficulties that they're facing and make them question, is this even worth it? Is my integrity in the workplace even worth it? Is my instructions to my kids even worth it? Because it seems like the other voices are so strong. So whether it's conformity or despair in the complexity, Christian, be warned. The life of the faithless is very persuasive. I remember potently experiencing this when I was a young Christian. I came to faith my freshman year of college, and I was exponentially growing in the context of a church community and a Bible study and in the context of discipleship, and I was actively trained to share my faith, and I was alive, and it was awesome. But then summer break came, and I I lived the first 18 years of my life as a godless man, one that lived his own way, by his own drum. And so 18 years of my life, I experienced sort of, you know, under my parents' home. So here I am, a new Christian, but I'm about to go home for summer break and be back in my parents' home, surrounded by my old ways of living. Boy, was that so utterly tempting. I remember laying in my bed one one evening, thinking about my old lifestyle and my own old friends, just thinking, I could be anyone I wanted to be right now. My old high school friends, middle school friends, they they don't know I'm a Christian. And so I could... It was just so tempting, so alluring. I just thought, I could text that old girl. I know we can watch a movie tonight and see, see where things take us. In my lonely, isolated moment, I was so tempted to just conform. Christian, beware of the allure of the life of the, the faithless. It was difficult to me, for me to say no. By God's grace, I really don't know, other than God's grace, how I survived this summer, but I never sent that text message. I think God's grace just had its grip on me. Beware, Christian, of the allure of the, of the life of the faithless. So what do we do? What do we do when we're so persuaded and tempted by the life of the faithless? Our text says that we're called to enter the sanctuary When you feel enamored by the seemingly problem-free, hakuna matata, pain-free life of the godless, and when you question if the Christian life is worth, worth it, enter the sanctuary of God. Verse 16, but when I thought to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, until, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Friends, it's wearisome to try to reason your way through the Christian life. 
Asaph couldn't figure it out on his own. And so he had to turn to God. He turned to the sanctuary. The sanctuary is the place where God dwells with his people. It's where heaven meets earth. The sanctuary is an earthly replica of a heavenly reality. This is where Asaph, the psalmist, turned. Now, he doesn't go into detail about what he experienced in the sanctuary. I, find that, I found that difficult when I was wrestling with how to preach this text. I thought, oh, where's the five steps instructions on what to do in the sanctuary? It wasn't there. I guess we don't need it. No, rather than five steps of instruction, Asaph just tells us the effect that the sanctuary had on him. Verse 17, until I went in the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. You see, there's something about the sanctuary of God that caused this man to consider the fate of the faithless. That was the effect God's revelation, God's communion with him had on him. Friends, consider this morning the fate of the faithless. Those who remain unfaithful to God face this fate of verses 18 through 20. Look with me. Verse 18. Truly you set them, that's the wicked, in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakens, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Friends, if you remain outside of the sanctuary, outside of the presence of God, living your own way, this is your fate. You will fall to ruin, verse 18. In a moment, you'll be swept away by the terrors of God, God's wrath, 19. Like waking up from a nightmare, one day you'll realize life had the appearance of prosperity, but in reality, you're only perishing, verse 20. And God will put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to him. Like Gatsby, you will have an unexpectedly unhappy ending. Apart from God, your life is just death dressed in a tuxedo. It's better than it actually looks. So what does God do for Asaph so he's not allured by this? It's almost like God hit the fast forward button in Asaph's life and he showed him the fate of the wicked. That's what it means by I discern their end in verse 17. It's like if you were Nick Carraway envying the life of Gatsby in the beginning of the story, it's almost like as if the author bypassed the messy middle and he just wound up to the end. And imagine if Nick, who was allured by the Gatsby life, just saw Gatsby dead in that tuxedo with a boarded up mansion. The allure wouldn't have the same effect. If, if, if Nick Carraway knew the fate of Gatsby ahead of time. It's kind of what, like what God's doing for Asaph in the sanctuary. He would have just seen a dead man in a tuxedo, that the glitz and glamour is just but a nightmare, an unhappy ending. It's been interesting to watch my daughter learn the effect of consequences in life. We have a, a mantra at the dinner table, we say, uh, if you play, it goes away. 
and we're trying to instruct my daughter that if, she, if she's playing, that her, then her food is going to go away. That the consequence of playing at dinner time is that she'll lose her food. And she's learning that her actions actually have consequence. And because she knows the consequences, it motivates her to, to act and live differently in the now. Because she knows her fate. She knows that she's going to lose her plate of food if she's just going to play around. If you play, it goes away. I fear that in our adult lives, as we get older, it's as if we act as if there is no consequence in life. And we ignore the fate of our actions. It's like one, I love this song. It's this, it's, the lyrics are in Spanish, so I had to look up what the lyrics meant. I liked it because of its beat. I don't speak Spanish, so I had to look it up. We've been jamming out to it. I don't recommend it. I looked it up, and it's very inappropriate. <laughs> but it, it's, it's got a good beat for salsa. Uh, <laughs> so I guess find the instrumental version. But here's the advice of the song, and I think it captures this well. He, he basically says, the, the core counsel of the song is, live however you like right now and take an Advil in the morning. And I, I fear that philosophy has utterly gripped us. It's like, ah, the consequences aren't, aren't that bad. And the life apart from God can sometimes look so tantalizing that it just seems like ah, they're, getting, they're getting on just fine without him. But there still is a glimmer of truth. And even the faithless knows that the morning after hurts. But what do they, how do they cope? They minimize it. It's like how all my drinking buddies in college ignored the morning after. They would laugh off the hangover. They would just minimize it. Just take an Advil in the morning. Friends, after you die in this life, there's no Advil waiting for you. This is, in God's providence, become, uh, this text has been, become quite real to me this week when I was just two days ago at my uncle's funeral. The, the fate of the faithless is, can be right before us. I was reminded of this this past Friday. So what are we to do? Friends, when you're perplexed by the prosperity of the wicked, consider their fate. Hit the fast-forward button in their life. When it seems like the, that, that coworker of yours who's flirting to get by through office politics, play that movie forward. Remind yourself that there are consequences. Even if his wife never finds out that he's flirting with the manager, he answers to the Lord. God always punishes wickedness. He has to. He is righteous. There's always consequence, even if it feels like you're getting by. So play the movie forward. And what you'll find is that their prosperity is actually perishing. How do we do this? When you're tempted, how, like, what, what would actually hitting the fast forward button and considering their faith look like? Well, it might look like reading Psalm 73, comparing verses 2 to 12 to the fate in 18 to 20. Or, since we're New Testament Christians, we can hit fast forward in the, the greatest story, the Bible. Well, you'll read about the exact same outcome. Actually, let's, let's practice this now. If you have a 
pew Bible in front of you. You can grab it. Turn to page 1041, 1041. I think most of the Bibles would be that. Other copies might be a different page. But look up Revelation 21, verse 3. I want to practice hitting fast forward together this morning. Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. What God has given us here and what you're holding in your hands is a glimpse into heaven. So here we are. Let's fast, hit fast forward together. Here's what, here's what the fate of the faithless looks like compared to the fate of the faithful. Verse 3, here's the, here's the fate of the faithful. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. This is the fate of the faithful Christian. He will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Death shall be no more for you. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. Friends, this is John by God's grace, being allowed to peek into the sanctuary. The actual thing, heaven to come. To, to get a glimmer of what the fate of the faithless looks like. Look at these promises. For those that are faithful to God, they will dwell with God in a space, in his sanctuary, in his presence, where there will be no more tears, Christian. No more death. No more grief. No more pain. This is the fate of all that are faithful to God. In other words, the Christian, after death, by grace through faith in Christ, will experience a pain-free, a problem-free, a relaxed and rich life in the presence of their God. But here's the stark contrast. Look with me in verse 8, Revelation 21, verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Friends, when you're tempted by the life of the faithless, hit fast forward and consider this fate. The fate of the faithless will inherit a second death. While, meanwhile, the faithful will inherit eternal life. So when you're perplexed by the prosperity of the, the wicked, consider their fate. One way you might do that is to turn to Revelation 21. It's really easy to find. It's just at the end of your Bible. Turn there often. Remind yourself. Reflect on the fate of the wicked so that the allure of it would grow strangely dim. So when you're perplexed by the prosperity of the wicked, consider their fate, one. But also, tell a different story. Tell a different story. Not only do we consider the fate of the faithless, not only will that help you in this life, but also tell a different story. Proclaim a different gospel. Verse 28. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I may... 
I have made the Lord God my refuge. Why? So that I may tell of all your works. Drawing near to God causes us to proclaim the goodness of God. We tell a different story. Verses 21 through 26 are a beautiful portrait of the gospel story. And if you're a Christian, this is your story. Verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you, God. Nevertheless, I'm, con- I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Friends, this is the fate of the Christian. Helped, guided, accepted forever. But this is also good news for the wicked. There's great hope in this text for the faithless. You see, God doesn't accept us by our own merits because we're some perfect people. No, we're allowed back into God's presence because we're a forgiven people. Verse 22, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. See, Asaph was imperfect. You're imperfect. Nevertheless, your God is continually with you. He's holding you by your right hand. You see, the the first wicked people to ever be cast out of God's presence were Adam and Eve. They were cast out of the sanctuary, Eden, the first sanctuary on earth, because of their infidelity, their unfaithfulness towards God. And there was a consequence. They were cast out from God's presence. In a sense, you could say that the story of the Bible is a story of God's people trying to get back into the sanctuary. So how can the wicked be welcomed once more? Well, God provided a provisional person and a provisional place. Provisional person was the priesthood and the provisional place was the sanctuary. You see, Asaph entered the sanctuary because he was a priest. He was from the order of Levi, the tribe of Levi, God's appointed priests. So as a man appointed by God to draw near to God for the people of God, Asaph, day by day, would draw into God's presence, enter into an earthly sanctuary to make sacrifices by the blood of goats and animals to cover up the rebellion of God's people because the wages of sin is always death. Someone has to die. But Asaph's priesthood is just a miniature of an ultimate priesthood, one that points to an ultimate priest, a priest who doesn't enter a temple built with hands, but an actual heavenly sanctuary, a priest who enters in once for all to make one perfect sacrifice so that all who trust and believe in him may enter into God's presence. Jesus is the great priest that Asaph's life points to. Asaph entered because he was a priest, and he would have entered an earthly sanctuary by the blood of goats and calves. But Jesus enters as a priest as well, but as a once-for-all priest into a heavenly sanctuary by his blood. This is what Hebrew 9 describes for us as, but when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, 
thus securing an eternal redemption. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but in heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Friends, what Jesus proclaims in John 6 is true, that everyone who looks to him and believes will inherit eternal life, who looks to him as their great high priest will follow where their priest has already gone before him. So how can a wicked man return back into the presence of God? Well, Jesus welcomes the wicked. He's willing to forgive the faithless. So just look to him and live. Trinity, this is the new story we as a community tell others. When we're perplexed by the prosperity of the wicked, consider their fate and tell a different story. We've got to ex- proclaim and exclaim a different narrative. So one way we might tell this story is by reworking Psalm 73, verses 22 to 24, and personalizing it. So this is how I might tell the story personally. I might tell a friend, verse 22, I once was brutish towards God, like a beast towards him. Yet he seized me from my right hand, from my worthless tuxedo of a life, verse 23, and he bought me a new wardrobe of Christ's righteousness. And now he guides me through this life, through his word and through his church and by his spirit. And because I believe in Jesus as my perfect priest, he will one day receive me into glory and to heaven, the final sanctuary, where he's already waiting for me. Verse 24. Friends, this is the gospel story. It turns beasts into the blessed ones. It turns those who are far off and it brings them back into the presence of God. So friends, as we close, dear ones, I, I fear we don't consider our fate enough. I fear we don't think about what will happen to us after we die enough. But this text lifts our eyes and forces us to hit fast forward and consider our fates. So friends who are here that that don't trust in Jesus as your ultimate priest, I fear you confuse the ease of your life as a life that you, you don't need God. I think the suburban life can be particularly difficult in that regard. But your life, please know, is death dressed in a tuxedo. And you will one day face the fate when you die, only to find out that all of your pursuits were perishable apart from Christ. Like Jay Gatsby, you're bound for an unhappy ending. So hit fast forward and consider your fate this morning, if that's you. And friends in here who are seeking to follow Jesus, consider how divine goodness is not prosperity around you, but it's God's presence, as one commentator puts it. So Christian, when you're feeling perplexed, if you're discouraged this week by the well-being of the wicked, first consider their fate. Hit fast forward. But then also tell a different story. Proclaim the good news of the gospel. Because we all must know that in the end, the wicked will perish but the faithful will prosper forever in the presence of their Savior, Jesus. So consider your fate this morning. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you for allowing us to consider heavenly realities now. And Lord, I ask that you would apply this text to our lives now. Would you encourage and strengthen my brothers and sisters who are living in discouragement because of the seeming prosperity of the wicked around them? Lord, I ask that you'd use, kindly apply this text by your spirit to encourage them this morning. Equip them to consider the fate of the faithless so the allure, the razzle-dazzle of the Gatsby life wouldn't be as potent. Would you help them once more delight in your presence rather than be allured by the prosperity of the wicked? And Lord, would you also equip my brothers and sisters to tell a different story? Lord, would you equip Trinity to be able to proclaim the gospel where the wicked are welcomed and that there's a different narrative in life. So Lord, would you help us to steward these truths you've given to us now? We thank you that Jesus is the willing one to welcome sinners, the one that allows access back into your presence through his grace. Would you help us cherish that and appreciate that this week all the more? pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.